Part 3, Chapter 3, Section 126 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, History of the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 3, Retirement to the Mount of Olives, Arrest, Trial, Condemnation, and Crucifixion of Jesus. Section 126 relation of the fourth gospel to the events in gethsemane the farewell discourses in john and the scene following the announcement of the greeks the relation of john to the synoptical narratives just considered has when regarded more closely two aspects first he has not what the synoptists present and secondly instead of this he has something which it is difficult to reconcile with their statements as regards the first and negative side it has to be explained how on the ordinary supposition concerning the author of the fourth gospel and the correctness of the synoptical account it happens that john who according to the two first gospels was one of the three whom jesus took with him to be the more immediate witnesses of his conflict passes in silence over the whole event it will not suffice to appeal to his sleepiness during the scene for if this was a hindrance to its narration all the evangelists must have been silent on the subject and not john alone hence the usual expedient is tried here also and he is said to have omitted the scene because he found it already presented with sufficient care in the writings of the synoptists but between the two first synoptists and the third there is here so important a divergency as to demand more urgently that john if he took their accounts into consideration should speak a mediating word in this difference if however john had not the works of his predecessors lying before him he might still it is said suppose that history to be sufficiently familiar to his readers as a part of evangelical tradition but as this tradition was the source of the divergent representations of the synoptists it must itself have early begun to exhibit variations and to narrate the fact first in one way then in another consequently on this view also there was a call on the author of the fourth gospel to rectify these wavering accounts hence of late an entirely new supposition has been adopted namely that john omits the events in gethsemane lest by the mention of the strengthening angel he should give any furtherance to the ebionitish opinion that the higher nature in christ was an angel which unified itself with him at baptism and now as it might be inferred again departed from him before the hour of suffering but not to urge that we have already found any hypothesis of this nature inadequate to explain the omissions in the gospel of john if this evangelist wished to avoid any indication of a close relation between jesus and angels he must also have excluded other passages from his gospel above all as luca remarks the declaration concerning the ascending and descending of angels upon him chapter one verse fifty two and also the idea 
given indeed only as the conjecture of some bystanders, that an angel spake to him, chapter 12, verse 29. If, however, he on any ground whatever found special matter of hesitation in the appearance of the angel in the garden, this would only be a reason for omitting the intervention of the angel, with Matthew and Mark, and not for excluding the whole scene, which was easily separable from this single particular. If the mere absence of the incident from the narrative of John is not to be explained, the difficulty increases when we consider what this evangelist communicates to us instead of the scene in the garden, concerning the mental condition of Jesus during the last hours previous to his arrest. In the same place which the synoptists assign to the agony in the garden, John, it is true, has nothing, for he makes the capture of Jesus follow at once on his arrival in the garden, but immediately before, at and after the last meal, he has discourses inspired by a state of mind which could hardly have, as a sequel, scenes like those which, according to the synoptical narratives, occurred in the garden. In the farewell discourses in John, namely chapters 14 through 17, Jesus speaks precisely in the tone of one who has already inwardly triumphed over approaching suffering, from a point of view in which death is quenched in the beams of the glory which is to come after, with a divine peace which is cheerful in the certainty of its immovability. How is it possible that, immediately after, this peace should give place to the most violent mental emotion? this tranquillity to a trouble even unto death, and that from victory achieved he should sink again into doubtful contest, in which he needed strengthening by an angel. In those farewell discourses he appears throughout as one who from the plentitude of his inward serenity and confidence comforts his trembling friends, and yet he now seeks spiritual aid from the drowsy disciples, for he requests them to watch with him. There he is so certain of the salutary effects of his approaching death as to assure his followers that it is well for them that he should go away, else the Comforter would not come to them. Here he again doubts whether his death be really the will of the Father. There he exhibits a consciousness which, under the necessity of death, inasmuch as it comprehends that necessity, recovers freedom, so that his will to die is one with the divine will that he should die. Here, these two wills are so at variance that the subjective submissively indeed, but painfully, bows to the absolute. And these two opposite states of mind are not even separated by any intervening incident of an appalling character, but only by the short space of time which elapsed during the walk from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, across the Kedron, just as if, in that brook, as in another Lethe, Jesus had lost all remembrance of the foregoing discourses. It is true that we are here referred to the alternation of mental states, which naturally becomes more rapid in proportion as the decisive moment approaches, to the fact that 
not seldom in the life of believers there occurs a sudden withdrawal of the higher sustenance of the soul an abandonment of them by god which alone renders the victory nevertheless achieved truly great and admirable but this latter opinion at once betrays its unintelligent origin from a purely imaginative species of thought to which the soul can appear like a lake ebbing or flowing according as the floodgates of the conducting canals are opened or closed by the contradictions in which it is on all sides involved the triumph of christ over the fear of death is said only to appear in its true magnitude when we consider that while a socrates could only conquer because he remained in the full possession of his mental energies christ was able to triumph over all the powers of darkness even when forsaken by god and the fullness of his spirit by his merely human soul but is not this the rankest pelagianism the most flagrant contradiction of the doctrine of the church as of sound philosophy which alike maintain that without god man can do no good thing that only by his armour can man repel the shafts of the wicked one to escape from thus contradicting the results of sober reflection the imaginative thinker is driven to contradict himself by supposing that in the strengthening angel which incidentally contrary to the verbal significance of the text is reduced to a merely internal vision of jesus there was imparted to jesus when wrestling in the extremity of his abandonment an influx of spiritual strength so that he thus would not as it was at first vaunted have conquered without but only with divine aid if in accordance with luke the angel be supposed to have appeared prior to the last most violent part of the conflict in order to strengthen jesus for this ultimate trial but rather than fall into so evident a self-contradiction olshausen prefers covertly to contradict the text and hence transposes the order of the incidents assuming without further preliminary that the strengthening came after the third prayer consequently after the victory had been already gained whence he is driven to the extreme arbitrariness of interpreting the phrase and being in an agony he prayed as the pluperfect he had prayed but setting aside this figurative representation of the cause which produced the sudden change of mood in jesus such a change is in itself burthened with many difficulties correctly speaking what here took place in jesus was not a mere change but a relapse of the most startling kind in the so-called sacerdotal prayer john chapter seventeen especially jesus had completely closed his account with the father all fear in relation to what awaited him lay so far behind the point which he had here attained that he spent not a single word on his own suffering and only spoke of the afflictions which threatened his friends the chief subject of his communion with the father was the glory into which he was about to enter 
and the blessedness which he hoped to have attained for his followers, so that his departure to the scene of his arrest has entirely the character of an accessory fact, merely consummating by external realization what was already inwardly and essentially effected. Now, if Jesus, after this closing of his account with God, once more opened it, if after having held himself already victor, he once more sank into anxious conflict, must he not have laid himself open to the remonstrance? Why didst thou not, instead of indulging in vain anticipations of glory, rather occupy thyself betimes with earnest thoughts of the coming trial, that by such a preparation thou mightest spare thyself perilous surprise on its approach? Why didst thou utter the words of triumph before thou hadst fought, so as to be obliged with shame to cry for help at the oncoming of the battle? In fact, after the assurance of already achieved victory expressed in the farewell discourses, and especially in the final prayer, the lapse into such a state of mind as that described by the synoptists would have been a very humiliating declension which Jesus could not have foreseen. Otherwise, he would not have expressed himself with so much confidence, and which, therefore, would prove that he was deceived in himself, that he held himself to be stronger than he actually found himself, and that he had given utterance to this too high self-valuation, not without a degree of presumption. Those who regard this as inconsistent with the equally judicious and modest character which Jesus manifests on other occasions, will find themselves urged to the dilemma that either the farewell discourses in John, at least the final prayer, or else the events in Gethsemane cannot be historical. It is to be regretted that, in coming to a decision in this case, theologians have set out rather from dogmatical prejudices than from critical grounds. Usteri's assertion, at least, that the representation given in John of the state of mind of Jesus in his last hours is the only correct one, while that of the synoptists is unhistorical, is only to be accounted for by that author's then zealous adherence to the paragraphs of Schleiermacher's Dogmatik, wherein the idea of the impeccability of Jesus is carried to an extent which excludes even the slightest degree of conflict. For that, apart from such presuppositions, the representation given in John of the last hours of Jesus is the more natural and appropriate, it might be difficult to prove. On the contrary, Brett Schneider might rather appear to be right when he claims the superiority in naturalness and intrinsic evidence of truth for the synoptists, were it not that our confidence in the decisions of this writer is undermined by his dislike for the dogmatical and metaphysical purport of the discourses assigned to this period in John, a dislike which appears to indicate that his entire polemic against John originated in the discordance between his own critical philosophy of reflection and the speculative doctrine of the fourth gospel. John, indeed, as even the author of the Probabilia remarks, 
has not wholly passed over the anxiety of Jesus in relation to his approaching death, he has only assigned to it an earlier epoch, John chapter 12, verse 27 and following. The scene with which John connects it takes place immediately after the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, when certain Greeks, doubtless proselytes of the gate, who had come among the multitude to the feast, wished to have an interview with him. With all the diversity of the circumstances and of the event itself, there is yet a striking agreement between what here occurs and what the synoptists place in the last evening of the life of Jesus, and in the seclusion of the garden. As Jesus here declares to his disciples, My soul is troubled even unto death, Matthew chapter 26 verse 38. So there he says, Now my soul is troubled, John chapter 12 verse 27. As here he prays, That if it be possible, this hour may pass from him, Mark chapter 14 verse 35. So there he entreats, Father, save me from this hour, John chapter 12 verse 27. As here he calms himself by the restriction, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Mark chapter 14 verse 36. So there, by the reflection, But for this cause came I to this hour. John chapter 12 verse 27. Lastly, as here an angel appears strengthening Jesus, Luke chapter 22 verse 43, so there something happens which occasions the bystanders to observe that an angel spake to him john chapter twelve verse twenty nine this similarity has induced many of the more modern theologians to pronounce the incident in john chapter twelve verse twenty seven and following and that in gethsemane identical and after this admission the only question was on which side the reproach of inaccurate narration, and more especially of erroneous position, ought to fall. Agreeably to the tendency of the latest criticism of the Gospels, the burthen of error in this matter has been more immediately cast on the synoptists. The true occasion of the mental conflict of Jesus is said to be found only in John, namely, in the approach of those Greeks who intimated to him through Philip and Andrew their wish for an interview with him. These persons doubtless wished to make the proposal that he should leave Palestine and carry forward his work among the foreign Jews. Such a proposal held out to him the enticement of escape from the threatening danger, and this for some moments placed him in a state of doubt and inward conflict which, however, ended by his refusing to admit the Greeks to his presence. Here we have the effects of a vision rendered so acute by a double prejudice, both critical and dogmatical, as to read statements between the lines of the text. For of such an intended proposal on the part of the Greeks, there is no trace in John. And yet, even allowing that the evangelist knew nothing of the plan of the Greeks from these individuals themselves, there must have been some intimation in the discourse of Jesus 
that his emotion had reference to such a proposal. Judging from the context, the request of the Greeks had no other motive than that the solemn entrance of Jesus, and the popular rumor concerning him, had rendered them curious to see and know the celebrated man, and this desire of theirs was not connected with the emotion which Jesus experienced on the occasion, otherwise than that it led Jesus to think of the speedy propagation of his kingdom in the Gentile world, and of its indispensable condition, namely his death. Here, however, the idea of his death was only immediately and remotely presented to the soul of Jesus. Hence, it is more difficult to conceive how it could affect him so strongly as that he should feel himself urged to beseech the Father for delivery from this hour, and if he were ever profoundly moved by the presentiment of death, the synoptists appear to place this fear in a more suitable position, in immediate proximity to the commencement of his sufferings. The representation of John is also deficient in certain circumstances, presented by the synoptists, which appear to vindicate the trouble of Jesus. In the solitude of the garden and the gloom of night, such an ebullition of feeling is more conceivable, and its unrepressed utterance to his most intimate and worthy friends is natural and justifiable. But according to John, that agitation seized Jesus in the broad daylight, in the concourse of people, a situation in which it is ordinarily more easy to maintain composure, or in which at least it is usual, from the possibility of misconstruction, to suppress the more profound emotions. Hence, it is more easy to agree with Thiele's opinion that the author of the fourth gospel has inserted the incident, correctly placed by the synoptists, in a false position. Jesus, having said, as an introduction to the answer which he returned to the request of the Greeks, that they might see the man who had been so glorified by his entrance into the city, yes, the hour of my glorification is come, but of glorification by death. Chapter 12, verse 23 and following. This led the narrator astray, and induced him, instead of giving the real answer of Jesus to the Greeks together with the result, to make Jesus dilate on the intrinsic necessity of his death, and then almost unconsciously to interweave the description of the internal conflict which Jesus had to experience in virtue of his voluntary sacrifice, whence he subsequently, in its proper place, omits this conflict. There is nothing strange in Thiele's opinion, except that he supposes it possible for the Apostle John to have made such a transposition. That the scene in Gethsemane, from his having been asleep while it was passing, was not deeply imprinted on his mind, and that it was besides thrust into the background of his memory by the crucifixion which shortly followed, might have been considered explanatory of an entire omission, or a merely summary account of the scene on his part, but by no means of an incorrect position. If, notwithstanding his sleepiness at the time, 
he had taken any notice of the event, he must at least have retained thus much, that that peculiar state of mind in Jesus befell him close upon the commencement of his sufferings, in the night and in privacy. How could he ever so far belie his memory as to make the scene take place at a much earlier period, in the open day, and among many people? Rather than thus endanger the authenticity of the Gospel of John, others, alleging the possibility that such a state of mind might occur more than once in the latter part of the life of Jesus, deny the identity of the two scenes. Certainly, between the synoptical representation of the mental conflict of Jesus, and that given in John, besides the external difference of position, there exist important internal divergencies. The narrative in John containing features which have no analogy with anything in the synoptical account of the events in Gethsemane. It is true that the petition of Jesus in John for the deliverance from this hour is perfectly in unison with his prayer in the synoptists. But, on the other hand, there is no parallel to the additional prayer in John, Father, glorify thy name, chapter 12, verse 28. Further, though in both accounts an angel is spoken of, yet there is no trace in the synoptists of the heavenly voice which in the fourth gospel occasions the belief that an angel is concerned such heavenly voices are not found in the three first gospels elsewhere than at the baptism and again at the transfiguration of which latter scene the prayer of jesus in john father glorify thy name may remind us in the synoptical description of the transfiguration it is true the expressions glory and to glorify are not found but the second epistle to peter represents jesus as receiving in the transfiguration honor and glory and the heavenly voice as coming from the excellent glory chapter one verse seventeen and following thus in addition to the two narratives already considered there presents itself a third as a parallel, since the scene in John, chapter 12, verse 27 and following, is, on the one side, by the trouble of spirit and the angel, allied to the occurrences in Gethsemane, while on the other side, by the prayer for glorification and the confirmatory voice from heaven, it has some affinity with the history of the transfiguration. And here, two cases are possible either that the narrative of john is the simple root the separation of which into its constituent elements have given rise in a traditional manner to the two synoptical anecdotes of the transfiguration and the agony in the garden or that these last are the original formations from the fusing and intermingling of which in the legend the narrative of john is the mixed product between which cases only the intrinsic character of the narratives can decide. That the synoptical narratives of the transfiguration and the agony in the garden are clear pictures, with strongly marked features, can by itself prove nothing, since, as we have sufficiently shown, a narrative of legendary origin 
may just as well possess these characteristics as one of a purely historical nature thus if the narrative in john were merely less clear and definite this need not prevent it from being regarded as the original simple sketch from which the embellishing hand of tradition had elaborated those more highly coloured pictures but the fact is that the narrative in john is wanting not only in definiteness but in agreement with the attendant circumstances and with itself we have no intimation what was the answer of jesus to the greeks or what became of those persons themselves no appropriate motive is given for the sudden anguish of jesus and his prayer for glorification such a mixture of heterogeneous parts is always the sign of a secondary product of an alluvial conglomeration and hence we seem warranted to conclude that in the narrative of john the two synoptical anecdotes of the transfiguration and the agony in the garden are blended together if as is apparently the case the legend when it reached the fourth evangelist presented these two incidents in faded colours and an indistinct outline it would be easy for him since the idea of glorification had the double aspect of suffering and exaltation to confuse the two what he gathered from the narrative of the agony in the garden of a prayer of jesus to the father he might connect with the heavenly voice in the history of the transfiguration making this an answer to the prayer to the voice the more particular import of which as given by the synoptists was unknown to him he gave in accordance with his general notion of this incident as a glory conferred on jesus the import i have both glorified and will glorify again and to make it correspond with this divine response he had to unite with a prayer of jesus for deliverance that for glorification also the strengthening angel of which the fourth evangelist had perhaps also heard something was included in the opinion of the people as to the source of the heavenly voice in regard to the time john placed his narrative about midway between the transfiguration and the agony in the garden and from the ignorance of the original circumstances the choice in this respect was infelicitous if we here revert to the question from which we set out whether we are rather to retain the farewell discourses in john as thoroughly historical and renounce the synoptical representation of the scene in gethsemane or vice versa we shall be more inclined considering the result of the inquiry just instituted to embrace the latter alternative the difficulty that it is scarcely conceivable how john could accurately remember these long discourses of jesus paulus has thought to solve by the conjecture that the apostle probably on the next sabbath while jesus lay in the grave recalled to his mind the conversations of the previous evening and perhaps also wrote them down but in that period of depression which john also shared he would be scarcely in a condition to reproduce these discourses without obscuring their peculiar hue of unclouded serenity on the contrary 
as the author of the Wolfenbüttel fragments observes, had the narrative of the words and deeds of Jesus been committed to writing by the evangelists in the couple of days after the death of Jesus, when they had no longer any hope, all promises would have been excluded from their gospels. Hence, even Luca, in consideration of the mode of expression in the farewell discourses, and particularly in the final prayer, being so peculiarly that of John, has relinquished the position that Jesus spoke in the very words which John puts into his mouth, that is, the authenticity of these discourses in the strictest sense, but only to maintain the more firmly their authenticity in the wider sense, that is, the genuineness of the substantial thoughts. Even this, however, has been attacked by the author of the Probabilia, for he asks, with a special reference to chapter 17, whether it be conceivable that Jesus, in the anticipation of violent death, had nothing of more immediate concern than to commune with God on the subject of his person, the works he had already achieved, and the glory to be expected, and whether it be not rather highly probable that the prayer flowed only from the mind of the writer, and was intended by him as a confirmation of his doctrine of Jesus as the incarnate word, and of the dignity of the apostles. This representation is so far true that the final prayer in question resembles not an immediate outpouring of soul, but a product of reflection, is rather a discourse on Jesus than a discourse from him. It presents everywhere the mode of thought of one who stands far in advance of the circumstances of which he writes, and hence already sees the form of Jesus in the glorifying haze of distance, an illusion which he heightens by putting his own thoughts which had sprung from an advanced development of the Christian community, into the mouth of its founder prior to its actual existence. But in the preceding farewell discourses also, there are many thoughts which appear to have taken their shape from an experience of the event. Their entire tone may be the most naturally explained by the supposition that they are the work of one to whom the death of Jesus was already a past event, the terrors of which had melted away in its blessed consequences, and in the devotional contemplation of the church. In particular, apart from what is said of the return of Christ, that era in the Christian cause, which is generally called the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is predicted in the declarations concerning the paraclete, and the judgment which he would hold over the world. Chapter 14, verse 16 and following, verse 25, chapter 15, verse 26, chapter 16, verse 7 and following, verse 13 and following, with a distinctness which seems to indicate light borrowed from the issue. In relation, however, to the fact that the farewell discourses involve the decided foreknowledge of the immediately approaching result, the sufferings and death of Jesus, chapter 13, verse 18 and following, verses 33 and 38, chapter 14, verse 30 and following, chapter 16, verse 5 and following, 
verses 16 and 32 and following. The narrative of John stands on the same ground with the synoptical one, since this also rests on the presupposition of the most exact prescience of the hour and moment when the sufferings will commence. It was not only at the last meal and on the departure to the Mount of Olives that this foreknowledge was shown, according to the three first Gospels, for in them, as well as in John, Jesus predicts that the denial of Peter will take place before the cockcrow. Not only does the agony in the garden rest on the foreknowledge of the impending sufferings, but at the end of this conflict, Jesus is able to say that now, at this very minute, the betrayer is in the act of approaching. Matthew chapter 26, verse 45 and following. Paulus, it is true, maintains that Jesus saw from a distance the troop of guards coming out of the city, which, as they had torches, was certainly possible from a garden on the Mount of Olives. But without being previously informed of the plans of his enemies, Jesus could not know that he was the object of pursuit, and at any rate the evangelists narrate the words of Jesus as a proof of his supernatural knowledge. But if, according to our previous inquiry, the foreknowledge of the catastrophe in general could not proceed from the higher principle in Jesus, neither could that of the precise moment when it would commence, while that he, in a natural way, by means of secret friends in the Sanhedrim, or otherwise, was apprised of the fatal blow which the Jewish rulers, with the help of one of his disciples, were about to aim at him in the coming night, we have no trace in our evangelical accounts, and we are therefore not authorized to presuppose anything of the kind. On the contrary, as the above declaration of Jesus is given by the narrators as a proof of his higher knowledge, either we must receive it as such, or, if we cannot do this, we must embrace the negative inference that they are here incorrect in narrating such a proof. And the positive conclusion on which this borders is, not that the knowledge was, in fact, only a natural one, but that the evangelical narrators must have had an interest in maintaining a supernatural knowledge of his approaching sufferings on the part of Jesus, an interest the nature of which has been already unfolded. The motive also for heightening the prescience into a real presentiment, and thus for creating the scene in Gethsemane, is easy of discovery. On the one hand, there cannot be a more obvious proof that a foreknowledge of an event or condition has existed than its having risen to the vividness of a presentiment. On the other hand, the suffering must appear the more awful if the mere presentiment extorted from him who was destined to that suffering anguish even to bloody sweat and prayer for deliverance. Further, the sufferings of Jesus were exhibited in a higher sense as voluntary, if before they came upon him externally, he had resigned himself to them internally. And lastly, it must have gratified primitive Christian devotion to withdraw the real crisis of these sufferings from the profane eyes to which he was exposed on the cross, 
and to enshrine it as a mystery only witnessed by a narrow circle of the initiated. As materials for the formation of this scene, besides the description of the sorrow and the prayer which were essential to it, there presented itself first the image of a cup used by Jesus himself as a designation of his sufferings, Matthew chapter 20, verse 22 and following, and secondly, Old Testament passages in Psalms of Lamentation, Psalm 42, verses 6 and 12, Psalm 43, verse 5, where in the Septuagint the soul exceeding sorrowful occurs, and in addition to this the expression unto death the more naturally suggested itself, since Jesus was here really about to encounter death. This representation must have been of early origin, because in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7, there is an indubitable allusion to this scene. Thus, Gobbler said too little when he pronounced the angelic appearance, a mythical garb of the fact that Jesus, in the deepest sorrow of that night, suddenly felt an accession of mental strength, since, rather, the entire scene in Gethsemane, because it rests on presuppositions destitute of proof, must be renounced. Herewith, the dilemma above stated falls to the ground, since we must pronounce unhistorical not only one of the two, but both representations of the last hours of Jesus before his arrest. The only degree of distinction between the historical value of the synoptical account and that of John is that the former is a mythical product of the first era of traditional formation, the latter of the second, or, more correctly, the one is a product of the second order, the other of the third. The representation common to the synoptists and to John, that Jesus foreknew his sufferings even to the day and hour of their arrival, is the first modification which the pious legend gave to the real history of Jesus. The statement of the synoptists that he even had an antecedent experience of his sufferings is the second step of the mythical, while that, although he foreknew them, and also in one instance had a foretaste of them, John chapter 12, verse 27 and following, he had yet long beforehand completely triumphed over them, and when they stood immediately before him, looked them in the face with unperturbed serenity. The representation of the fourth gospel is the third and highest grade of devotional, but unhistorical embellishment. End of section 126